you have a Bible, please take it out in book or app form. Turn with me to the book of Romans. <clears throat> we are in a study in the book of Romans. We are now in Romans 13. If you are newer or a guest to this ministry, we make it our regular practice to teach through books of the Bible. And we've been walking through the book of Romans, which was written by an individual named Paul, the Apostle Paul. It is probably his most well-known book. It's his longest book. It's a major treatise. And we've been walking through it over the last, well, now over a year. And so I uh, want to bring you up to speed a little bit by having you turn to, like I said, Romans 13. As you find the first seven verses, let me pray, then we'll start walking through what is a very practical and relevant text that may be more significant and necessary for us to look at than you may first believe on a first run through. So let's pray for God's help as we walk through it, and then we'll start doing so. All right, Jesus, thank you for this time. I thank you for a country like this where we can live and enjoy and gather and travel and, and talk about things like the things that we're going to talk about today with great freedom. I thank you for those who are here, either those for the first time or those that call this place home. I thank you for this time and I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would guide it, work through it, in it, and move, move us to places where we need to be moved. And I pray that we would be well receiving in that, meaning that we would be good soil, meaning that we would have ears to hear. I also recognize that we have an enemy that would love nothing more than to snatch that which, that which gets planted. So I pray against our enemy. I pray for a hedge of protection around this place. Help me as a proclaimer and teacher. Help all of us as listeners. We want to hear from you. So I pray that we'd be good listeners. I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been around for the last number of weeks, specifically, specifically the last three, one of the things that I hope you're beginning to get a sense of is that in this fifth, what is our fifth and final section of our study of the book of Romans, which is encapsulated in chapters 12 to 16, that everything from chapter one thereafter flows out of the first two verses of chapter 12. If you remember from three weeks ago, that's that very well-known text, at least for those that are somewhat familiar with the Bible, where Paul instructs us that based on the mercies of God, mercies of God, a topic that he's described in great detail over the previous 11 chapters, that based on the mercies of God that, God that we have received, it should get fleshed out. It should get lived out as we present our bodies as living sacrifices, recognizing and understanding that we are being transformed, really going through a metamorphosis by way of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And this is what that metamorphosis looks like. A person who says yes to Jesus, Holy Spirit indwells them. Now going forward, how does that look? What does it look like to the world around us? Well, we've looked at some of those things, in particular, things like how we should view ourselves and how we should view ourselves in relationship to others. How should we view ourselves? Humbly. We should view ourselves humbly because everything we have has been given to us. How should we function with one another? In unity. And really, we should serve one another and serve one another, one another out of the gifts that have been given to us by the Spirit. We should serve one another in that capacity for unity's sake, for service's sake, for ministry's sake, and the like. But how also does it get fleshed out in ways 
that, go ex- that extend outside of this. Meaning, how do we respond to those outside of the church or enemies of it? When I talk about the church, I'm talking about us as a group of people or you individually. How do we respond to our enemies? That's what we looked at last week. We seek peace. We extend good even in the face of evil. That our desire is to make Jesus known, and one of the ways that we make Jesus known is being Jesus, meaning responding like Jesus responded, that we as his students and his followers and his disciples are to flesh that out that way. That's what we've seen thus far, but again, just to remind you, Paul and everything that comes in this final section comes and still is fleshing out those first two verses. And so even though we're now going from chapter 12 to chapter 13, Paul is continuing on in that same path. And the question that he is going to have us wrestle with today is, what does it look like for us in relationship with those who govern over us, specifically those in authority of all things, political authority, civil authority, and so forth. Our text, like I said, first seven verses begins in verse one with an instruction where Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So there's the instruction. We are to be subject, a word that literally means submit yourselves to governing authorities. That word authority in context speaks to political authorities, civil authorities, but it's a a word that is used in many places, speaking of many types of authorities. It's a word that simply means those who have power or authority to wield have that type of, have that type of place. It speaks of then parental authority. It speaks of boss or employer type of authority. It speaks of authority of those who are in, in religious institutions. In our context, a place like this, and there's the temple, for example, before the coming of Jesus or thereafter to the church. Apostolic authority, elder authority, that type of thing. That's the instruction. Let us be subject to those who are in Authority. Now, the big question that we need to wrestle with hereafter and what Paul addresses next is why. Why should we? Why should we be subject? Why should we submit ourselves to authority that is over us? Well, the first answer is because authority as a topic or specific as a thing originates from God. Authority in its essence comes from God. We see this halfway through verse one where Paul writes, for there is no authority except from God. He is the originator of that which is authority. So that's one reason, it comes from him and therefore it is good. He has given it to us, but specifically why we are to submit ourselves, be subject to authority is also because every specific institution or office from a a standpoint or has authority over us, is instituted by God. So go big picture to smaller, and look what Paul writes at the end of verse one. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So the whole idea of authority, big picture, and now every institution in office. Really? Rob Ford? He's, he's easy to pick on. If you're here, Rob, it's great to see you, man. Every authority, every, all, can't be. Only the good ones. How about that? How about just the good ones? Not every. 
or just the really quote-unquote important ones. Presidents, prime ministers, that type of thing. You know what? I get the question, but there's no support for that in the scriptures. The reason why I say that, let me give you two examples. Jesus, in the book of John, has a back and forth discussion with Pilate. This is what we read there. So Pilate said to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate, the authority you wield, the authority that will allow you to declare me to be crucified was given to you by my father. Wow. But maybe this is just one of those rare cases, specific just to the crucifixion of Jesus, God orchestrating that, but that's just an exclusive situation. Remember the book of Habakkuk when we studied Habakkuk? Some of you may call it Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Habakkuk, the whole context of the book of Habakkuk is God, the world is spinning out of control and it's seemingly, it's, it's looking seemingly that you're doing nothing. Don't care, don't see, or just don't have the power to do anything. So Habakkuk cries out to God and says, why don't you start doing something? Same cries that we have. God, don't you see what's going on? Don't you care? Why are you seemingly disinterested? Here's God's answer in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Who are the Chaldeans? Chaldeans slash Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And if you know and if you remember our study of the book of Habakkuk, God was raising up the nation, the people, the Chaldeans, to bring punishment on the nation of Israel, specific to Judah at the time. He was going to take care of them. God was going to use that hasty and bitter nation to bring punishment on the nation of Israel. And then you know what he does? He goes back and he punishes the Chaldeans for what they did to the nation of Israel. Wow. If that troubles you, just go back and listen. I think there should be some measure of angst and going, what's going on? How do I get my head wrapped around this? Well, I think at the very least, at the very least, what we get with these two texts, John 19, Habakkuk chapter 1, when we Put them together with our text, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. At the very least, I think what we get is, look, these aren't exclusive cases. That all authority comes from God. All authority is instituted by God, and there's not an exception to that. Therefore, here's what Paul writes in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur her judgment. Two big takeaways, pretty obvious takeaways. The first takeaway, when we resist any authority, we resist God. 
Any authority we resist, we resist God. Even though the authority we are resisting is borrowed authority, ultimately it's authority borrowed from God, and therefore when we resist those who have borrowed authority, we resist God. What do I mean by a borrowed authority? Well, I've taught on this before in certain contexts, and if I've shared this illustration with you before, my apologies, but it works here. I have two sons. I have a 12-year-old son. I have an 11-year-old son. Let's say it's dinner time at the Funk household, and my older son's upstairs, and he's doing something up there, he's studying whatever, and I want him down for dinner, and I go, hey, Micah, go get your, go get your older brother. Micah runs upstairs, knocks on the door, Matthew, come on down, time for dinner. Matthew responds, no, not doing it. Micah then says, hey, Matthew, Dad told me to go get you. What's Micah doing? He has board authority, right? He's, not, he's speaking on my behalf. What if Matthew then says at that time, no. Trouble is what happens, just if you want to, <laughs> trouble. Why? Why, why? Trouble for me too, why? Because he is not simply defying or resisting Micah, he's defying and resisting me based on the authority that Micah has been given or borrowed from me to take the message to Matthew. So Matthew would get a soup bone, biscuit, right? He would be taken care of because that's how our house functions and it functions well. We like that and it's good. We are not equal in my family and I make that known. I know people believe in that. I don't, I'm daddy. Okay, make that very clear to my kids all the time. I have them repeat that to me, actually, on occasion. Just to remind, who am I? Who am I? Your daddy. Exactly. You're not. We're not buddies. I know that's very contrary to this time and season. That's okay. Um, so that's the situation. So when we talk about resisting any authority here, we resist God ultimately. A second takeaway coming out of this verse is we will incur judgment if we resist those in authority. Well, from who? Who's the judgment coming from? Well, ultimately God, but in context, those who are in authority. Therefore, that word judgment does not speak about damnation, end of the age judgment. It's speaking about punishment. Punishment from those who are in authority if we resist them, defy them, break that which they want us or have called us to. Now, I want you to skip over verse 3. We'll come back to it in a minute. Let's first look at verse 4 for it affirms this point. The point being, who does the judgment or the punishment come from? It also gives us a third reason for why we should submit to governing authorities. Look at verse 4. We read, for he, speaking of whoever's in authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. There's our third reason why we need to submit to those in authority. That person is a servant of God. They are being used by God to to do good, but also to, as we see here, as an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Wow, that's quite the verse. But we get affirmed here again what their role is. They're God's servant. One of the things they do is they bring down judgment, wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is a, 
It's a hard word. Nobody likes talking about wrath. Wrath is simply the visible expression of righteousness. So when we talk about the righteousness of God, what is wrath? Wrath is retribution against that which is unrighteous. And so who is the wrath of God coming from? Again, in context, from those who are in authority. We see that here. They are the ones that have been given the sword, the power to carry out punishment, and therefore, if we do wrong, be afraid, because the sword is not given in vain. And we want this. Believe it or not, we want this. We want this to be. If somebody robs, somebody rapes, somebody extorts, somebody pillages, somebody, somebody beats, we want that person brought to justice. We want to live in that society. In fact, we not only want this, we demand it. We cry out if justice doesn't take place against those who rape and rob and extort and so forth. We want it to be. We demand it. We see something that is contrary to that. We cry out, man. It's a, it's a miscarriage of justice. Person needs to be punished. We want verse 4 to be the case. It's one of the great benefits of the law in that it serves as a guardian of peace, safety, and decorum. And oftentimes it is only the fear of justice and punishment that keeps people from carrying out wrong in the first place. Back to our text. Take a look at it with me. Go back to verse 3. Want to double back? Because the role of those placed in authority in part is to carry out justice on wrongdoers, Paul writes, as we now look at verse 3, that none of us has anything to worry about if we only do that which is good. Look at verse 3. Prove it to you. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So don't rob, don't rape, don't extort, don't pillage, don't bludgeon, and we won't have to worry about dealing with that punishment coming by way of those in authority. That's Paul's point here. Paul furthers his case. If you now jump over verse 4, because we've already looked at it, and look at verse 5 where he writes, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, what does that mean and why does he further his case here? Remember who Paul is speaking to, and remember this letter is for us. He's speaking to the church in Rome, Christ's followers in Rome. And what Paul is saying here is, look, don't just be obedient because you're not wanting to get the wrath of God through this particular institution. Don't just be obedient because you don't want to take on punishment. Be obedient because you want to honor God, serve God, live for God. And if you do that, you live with a clear conscience that it's more than simply being obedient because you don't want to slap on the wrist or imprisonment or something in between. It's because you love God and you want to live a kind of life that has a clear conscience before him because here's the thing. It is quite possible in our society to do things that are against the law and not be found out and therefore not punished. But what we won't be free of, even though we're free from punishment, is not free from a guilt-laden conscience. which is probably relevant to some of us in here, I think. 
Some of us may be living lives that are free from punishment, at least at this stage. But you're living with the guilt. Paul says we want to live to both ends, free from punishment and free from guilt. That's his point here in verse 5. That's what he's getting at here in verse 5. Verse 6 goes on and includes a specific example of how we are to honor those who govern us. Take a look at verse 6, and this is going to open up a whole can of discussion in your community groups this week. For because of this, you also pay taxes. There it is. Pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So now we get another reason for why we are to submit to authorities because God raises up those in authority to take our money and minister it, administrate it. In other words, they are to take our money and they are to use it so that the city we live in, the province we live in, the country we live in will be served in those ways that need to be served. Jesus speaks on the topic of taxes in Mark chapter 12, where he has this back and forth. Some Pharisees and some Herodians come to him, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, very strange bedfellows, by the way. They did not agree on anything, these two people groups, except they didn't like Jesus. They could agree with that, on that. To trap him in his talk, Jesus talk, and they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are true, you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful? Meaning lawful according to the Bible, their law. To pay taxes to Caesar or not, should we pay them or should we not? Jesus responds, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. Pay your taxes. We hate to pay taxes, right? I know we hate to pay taxes, but we do love our streets, Love our libraries, great library across, across the street. Like our parks, like our schools. Healthcare, public safety, airports, unemployment insurance, old age pensions, border safety, and Don Cherry. We love it all, <laughs> right? We love it all. 1.8 billion of your taxes, my taxes, went to the CBC at Crown Corporation, bought Don a lot of big collared shirts, right? We love that. We love all of of that stuff, but it's at this point where I'm going to press the pause button and I'm going to recognize your squirminess because you have a lot of questions probably coming out of what we've looked at thus far. What's the issue in this whole discussion of authority, taxes, ruling, submit, submit to all, God's raised them up? What's the issue? Well, many of us are suspect at best at those who are in authority, civil or otherwise, And our cynicism comes because many of us have been burned personally or in general by someone in authority. Additionally, we have seen the atrocities of things done by those in authority. This is an across-the-board cynicism. By the way, the vocations that people are most cynical towards today 
politicians, lawyers, financiers, and clergy. And I would add baristas. Baristas, <laughs> see a little cynical in a $5 coffee, like a little bit, like when I look at them, I go, really? A little c- cynical when they drive their Benz away, right? You go, wow, they're driving a Benz and they're barista. And regarding taxes specifically, it's one, th- it's one thing seeing them go on towards or go, go towards things that we deem necessary. Right? We like our parks, we like our schools, we like our streets and so forth. But it's another thing when we see them go f- towards things like insane severance packages or silly research projects. Just Google, Silly Research Projects Canada, and you can spend the better part of an afternoon reading about them. Or to just simply re-election campaigns where it seems like those in power just want to stay in power and that's all they do is just keep on working to stay in power and they're spending our tax dollars to stay in power so they can spend more tax dollars to stay in power. At least that's how we view it cynically, skeptically. And we wonder, but more serious to this discussion, what about those governments that prove horrific and decrepit and altogether evil? What about the Hitlers and the Stalins and the leaders of the Khmer Rouge? What what do we do with those? What about that? Let's pare it down even further, make it more practical. What about the boss who is unethical and is calling you to participate? What about that? What about, what about the parent who is abusive and telling you to be quiet? What, the, what about the spouse who is antagonistic and is simply calling you to submit because he knows one verse? What about that? What about the pastor who is a wolf and is telling you not to speak out against God's quote-unquote anointed? What if those God tells me to honor tell me not to talk about God? What do we do with that? Well, before we delve into questions like those and what is our response or do we just need to turn over and do nothing? What is our response? Before I hit that, let me quickly give you a brief biblical overview or a theology of authority. I talked about it earlier in connection with chapter, or excuse me, verse one, where all authority in general originates from God. So let me give you an overview. Where does authority come from? Where does, it, where does it originate? Well, the first thing that I think we need to go back to is that it has existed before the beginning of time, meaning that we see authority in the triune nature of God. God exists, one God manifests three persons, equally God. Persons meaning personal, not an esoteric it or power. One God, three persons, all of them equal, equal in essence, but serving in different functions. And their functions are demonstrated in authority given and authority lived out to or or responded to, better way of putting it. We see the Father sending the Son. We see the Son saying, I don't speak anything that the Father doesn't first tell me to speak. We see the Spirit being sent by Jesus. What are the roles of such? Well, the Holy Spirit, we exist at least in part to bring glory to Jesus. He makes Jesus known. 
That's why Jesus says, look, man, it's good for me to go. Holy Spirit's coming. Each of you will receive the Holy Spirit if you receive me to make Jesus known. What is the role of Jesus? Carry out the ways and the plan and the purpose of God. He is the agent of God's love. He is the agent of God's mercy. He is the agent of God's grace. And when Jesus died in submission to that, rightfully giving up that which was his, becoming obedient to the point of death, dying on a cross, he brings glory to the Father. Because glory to the Father is received when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. So we see this. Equality with submission. Equality with distinction. But equality and authority. We also see authority as modeled pre-fall. Pre-fall in the garden with our first parents, Adam and Eve. We see authority with the animals. We see authority with the garden itself. We see the authority all the way back pre-fall. What about thereafter? Well, it's modeled thereafter. We have kings, priests, judges, and prophets thereafter. We see the apostolic authority in the early church. We see elder authority. We see parental authority. We see civil authority. In spite of our general cynicism about authority, another thing interesting in its regard is that it's something that we will all have, at least to some degree in our lives. There's a good chance you will at some time be a boss or a parent or a leader or a supervisor or a coach or all at the same time or all together at least in part. Even the staunchest egalitarian and team player and or anarchist recognizes this. They must. We will all have authority over someone and we will all stand under authority of somebody else. All of us. Regardless of your take on it, we all will live in that sort of place. What about Jesus and his authority? What do we learn about authority as it plays specifically to the role and place and person of Jesus? Specifically, why, why is that important? Well, we exist to make Jesus known, but he is the center. He's the focal point of the work of God. So what do we see in that regard? Well, he taught with authority. People marveled at him, man. He doesn't teach like our other teachers. He teaches as one who has authority. Speaks with authority. What else do we discover about Jesus and authority? Well, all authority was given to him by his father. Read that in Matthew 28, verse 18. We also read that he gives us authority. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, I believe, verse 26, he's talking about the promises that are to come to the church in Thyatira. He says, to the overcomers, you will be given authority, authority over nations in the age to come. What else do we read about the authority of Jesus? Well, as connected to him, it's given to us and it's evidenced in places like Paul's instruction to Titus. Where Paul says this to Titus, it's not on the screen, I'll just read it for you. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What authority is Paul talking about there in Titus's regard? Well, authority as his position would have. He's a pastor of this church. He has a he has a measure of authority, but more specifically and more importantly, it's the authority of the scriptures. This goes back to board authority. That we have a good daddy who has given us a message. Like a daddy like I am to my son and say, give your, give your brother a message for me. And I give you authority. Same with us. We have a good daddy who's given us a bunch of authority by his word and says, declare it. 
So when you come before people and teach them, understand it's just board authority, but you better teach it well, man, because it's coming from me. So that's the authority. We see that authority. It's given to us. It's promised to us. Jesus has all authority. We see it modeled and lived out in the, in the Godhead itself. There's one other aspect of Jesus' authority that I'm not going to give you, but I will end, give you now, but I will end with it. So just keep that in mind. I'm going to come back to this topic of Jesus' authority. So with all of that in mind, what's the problem? What is the issue? Well, the answer is it goes back to my earlier point. We're skeptical of those in authority for we've been burned. Authority given gets tainted by us and others. And there have been horrific things done to us specifically or to society in general that makes us skeptical at best. So if that's the case then, if that's the reality of the world that we live in, either individually or corporately in the city or country in which, in which we live, yet we have this directive, which seems to be br- pretty black and white in, in our text. The question is, there, the question is, is, there any, is there any time where I can resist it? Or do I have, just have to take it? Is there an allowance for me to say No. I'm going to defy you. I'm going to resist you. Well, the answer is yes, many times yes. Let me give you some examples. When are those times when we can resist or defy, defy authority? Well, number one, when the, dire- when the directive is contrary to God's word. Having trouble with my enunciation. When the directive is contrary to God's word, we are allowed, biblically speaking, to defy, resist authority. Some examples, probably the most well-known example is found in Acts chapter 5, where Peter and some of the apostles, early church leaders, are proclaiming the name of Jesus, religious leadership of the day, and civil leadership of the day don't dig it. They want him to stop and his cronies to stop with him. So they give him the instruction. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't teach in the name of Jesus anymore. They're in charge. What's Peter say? Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We understand your position, the authority that you have, but God gave us the directive to be his witnesses. He left the Holy Spirit in us to do so. We will obey him, not you. Another example, because there's more, two great examples found in an Old Testament book called Daniel. Three dudes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In chapter uh, 3 of the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's a bit of a nut job. He, 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 he builds a 90-foot statue. Like, that's big. Like, I've seen some statues, man, but that's a big statue. He comes up with an ordinance that when a trumpet sounds, everybody's just got to drop, stop and roll, and worship it. That's it. Trumpet, boom. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's the king, man. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king. They say no. In fact, this is what they say specifically. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up, which led to the fiery furnace. How about Daniel chapter 6? 
The king now is King Darius, the Mede. Through some manipulation of some of the leaders around him, comes up with an ordinance, a 30-day ordinance that you can only pray to the king for that 30-day period. Daniel, who is awesome. This is what we read in Daniel chapter 6. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God and he had done as he had done previously. Here's the mandate. Here's the instruction. Daniel says, open the windows, baby. Let everybody see. That led to the lion's den. We... What we get in this, and these are just a few of the examples, is that there are times when we have to, we are instructed, commanded to say no to the authority over us. When it is contrary to that which God has given us already. Paul knew his Bible. Paul, the writer of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, knew his Bible. He knew the book of Daniel. And therefore, Paul is not calling us to be subject blindly But in general, recognizing that we may encounter times where we must choose God over man. I would include in in this those times when a boss calls you to partner in his unethical behavior. There are times where you have to choose the furnace or the lion's den over that which is standing before you. I also think a time may be coming where it becomes illegal in Canada to preach in a pulpit on certain topics. At that point, a pastor must serve God and not man. So that is one exception. It's not the only one, but that's one exception when it stands in contrary ways against what God has for us and instructed us in. Here's a second a second way we, or a reason we can defy those in authority when we are in a place of danger or abuse. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, and so on. You are to run. You are to leave. You are to seek counsel and help. And the surrounding of the body of Christ to stand with you on this. You are also to allow the authorities that God has raised up bring the sword down. We have to. Are there opportunities in that for reconciliation and healing and help? Certainly, and that's what we pray for. But to think that you have to stay in that situation because they're an authority figure of some sort and they, they've got a couple of verses that they're throwing out once in a while, that's not Paul's directive. Do we pray for, and I want you to hear me on this, restoration and healing and help and strength And all of that, certainly. But understand, Paul, same writer of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in the context of a marriage relationship, says there's opportunities at time and the necessity for times where you separate for a time of prayer. How long that time is, I don't know. And I think there's more than simply prayer going on. There is a situation going on in your relationship. You need help. You need counsel. You need support. 
Paul is not calling us to stay in those. He's calling us to seek help, and the help of the body of Christ in those situations so there can be healing and hope going forward. We need to pursue this. Are there other examples specific that you may have in mind and wonder about? Yeah, there probably are many more. That's what your community groups are for, that you can wrestle with in the context of your community groups this week. Talking about some of those specific what ifs, what about this, what about this. That's why we have those. So I encourage you this week, bring some of those, wrestle with it in the context of that particular group. But as I close, in light of all of this, what is our call? What's the takeaway? Because we're here, we're in Vancouver, we have a mayor, we have MLAs, we have MPs, we have, we have premiers, we have prime ministers, we have bosses, we have clergy, we have parents, right? What is, what is our call in this? Well, let me give you a couple of takeaways, three or four of them. First, let me begin this way. I think first we need to lay aside and perhaps repent of our cynicism. I get our cynicism towards certain people in governance situations. But I think there are times, if I could be so bold, that we're just overly cynical. That we just give no rope, no freedom, no benefit of the doubt. And oftentimes what we do, and I've talked about this before, is oftentimes we're bit over here and anything that smells even remotely close to that biting from somebody else, we transfer that biting onto this person and go, oh, you're like everybody else. I see that in the church a lot. People coming out of crappy churches where there's been abuse by authority and if there's just a hint here, man, like, well, you're typical. We, meet, we maybe need to consider that perhaps we're overly so. And perhaps we haven't been fair. And I'm not just talking about the church. I'm talking to myself in this when it comes to politicians. That I don't think necessarily anybody in, that, that runs for office is just power hungry. I don't believe that. So I think there's that aspect. I think it begins there. I think we at least need to ask some questions in that regard of ourselves. And maybe you're, that's not an issue for you, but I throw it out there as something to consider. Here's a second thing as a takeaway. We need to live out verses one to seven. Are there exceptions? Certainly, I've talked about those, but we need to live this out. Specifically, as Paul wraps up verse seven, our text in verse 7, he says this, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. What is Paul saying here? Is, well, he's saying that we demonstrate our submission by giving what is owed, but more than money is owed. That we need to give respect and honor in addition to that which we have to give financially. We need to do so. So we need to live out verses 1 to 7. A third takeaway from this is we need to pray for our leaders. Paul writes this to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, 
that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. I mean, easy for Paul to say, right? Because he lived under great leaders all the time. The godly life that he refers to led to Paul getting stoned. Not the 2014 version, first century version stonings. Canings, whippings, imprisonment. It says, pray for him. Pray for him. Because Jesus promised that we would be brought before them, and it's in our suffering that the cross is made most evident, our suffering. To fill up that which is lacking in Jesus' suffering, what was lacking in Jesus' suffering, not everybody knew it. It fulfilled what was necessary, but not everybody knows it. So how do we make the sufferings of Jesus known? We suffer for Jesus. So pray for your leaders. And as I said earlier, another takeaway coming out of this text is understand there may be times where we have to resist and defy and deny and say no. How do I close a message like this? Well, I have to confess, I'm closing my message like this differently coming out of something that I was reminded of by Mark, our worship guy earlier. He said something great when he led into worship. I don't want to take away his thunder. I just affirm what he said. And that is, earlier I talked about what we see as it pertains to Jesus and authority. See these things, all authority his. He gives us authority. Authority was given to him by his Father. But what is the most significant thing as we go into a time of response in this whole discussion of authority in Jesus? And again, I give credit to Mark on this. He laid it down. He laid it down. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he took the form of a servant, a man, not just any man, a servant who came and died. He laid it down for us. That's our Jesus. So as we go into a time of response and this whole discussion, let's have that front and center. Let's have the cross front and center. Asking Jesus, how do I make you known in, the light of, in light of what, what I have here in terms of my authority or the authority I live under? How do I make you known? I want to live like you, Jesus. Help me live like you. And thank you for laying your authority down so that I could have life. So let me pray for us, and then I'll lead us into a time of response. So Jesus, we do come before you in this time, and thank you. Thank you that you, God, gave up what was rightfully yours, never ceasing to be God, but not taking advantage of all that was yours, in fact, because you gave it up, giving it up for a time, at least taking advantage of it for a time, so that you would come and be a servant dying for us. Dying for us. So we thank you for that. We thank you for that. And as we go into this time of response, Jesus, we want this to be a time where your spirit rests heavy on us, that you are glorified, 
that you are glorified, that you're praised and you're worshiped. And Holy Spirit, fill our mouths with those things that bring glory to Jesus. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would receive glory as we declare that Jesus is Lord. So I just pray that that would take place. I also pray for us specifically. Father, I pray for us in regards to those who may be living in situations that they need to say to those that are abusing, hurting them, no. Where they need to defy and run. Those situations where maybe it's like Daniel's situations where those in authority over us are calling us to do something that we know is wrong and we need to say no. I pray for those individuals here. Help them. Give them strength. I pray that your spirit would fill them, even now in this time, emboldening them. Help them. I pray for those that need the help of the body around them, their community groups or good counsel or just the body of Christ in general to stand with them. Help them. And I do pray for reconciliation too and restoration and healing and health. I do pray to that end. But in that meantime, I just pray that they'd feel great encouragement as the body of Christ serves them and ministers to them. I pray, Father, also for us as a church, corporately and individually, that we would live godly, sincere, good lives here, that we would honor those you have placed over us. We do pray for our mayor. We do pray for our premier. We do pray for our prime minister. Bless them. Help them. Give them much courage and wisdom so they govern well, I pray. And I pray that we as a body, when people talk about Westside, that we as a body would be seen as a help to this city that you've placed us. So I just pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Pray that you would draw them to you and use us in that stead, I pray. I pray now for all of these things, praying that this time of response would be pleasing to you and a great time of ministry. All of this I pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Would you rise, please, as we go into this time of response?